Father, thank you. Even on Father's Day, we are thankful for you, our Heavenly Father. And we ask you now to grant us the very thing that the Lord Jesus prayed to a group of people outside of a tomb 2,000 years ago. Would you grant us to see your glory? Would you allow us to believe Jesus ourselves and find a new perspective on death? Because Jesus has the authority over death and life. Would you grant us that this morning, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. It's no doubt we are a people, we live at a time that have lost our perspective on death and thus have lost our perspective on how to live. You can see this clearly in the tragedy of the death of a woman named Brittany Manyard. Back in November 1st of 2014, with the assistance of some doctors in Oregon, she took her own life. This is what she said before that. She said, I plan to be surrounded by my immediate family, which is my husband and my, my mother, my stepfather and my best friend, who is also a physician. I will die upstairs in my bedroom that I share with my husband and pass peacefully with some music that I like in the background. Now that sounds like a worthy enough goal, except for the fact that Brittany was a a young woman, only 29 years old, who had a terminal prognosis of brain cancer. In an effort to avoid the suffering that her condition had before her, she took her own life instead. You know, we live at a time where many people would say that that is right and good to even exercise your own independence and autonomy over the way you will die. In some senses, people today are even a little obsessed over death. Talking about physician-assisted suicide. You can think about how we talk about even abortion and abortion rights. Or even the spike in teen suicides right now. We live at a time where some might say that we are a culture obsessed with death. And yet, on the other hand, uh, there are corners of our society that, frankly, try to hide from death. We think about how we can lengthen our lives, even taking extraordinary steps to stay healthy, having good diets and the right exercise and avoiding the wrong sort of behaviors, all almost thinking that death will never come for us. So many of us never actually see people die. People die off in hospitals, in funeral homes. And especially if you're young, you may never think about death for even long stretches of time. But none of us can escape the reality of death, can we? And you can't know how to live well unless you know how to die well. And that's why we need John chapter 11. It's a very familiar passage. Jesus raising a man that was dead named Lazarus. And yet for as familiar as it is, it provides perspective that we badly need this morning. A perspective that shows us that Jesus has authority over death. And that changes everything about how we live in this life. We'll see this as we walk through this story of how Jesus raises this dead man, Lazarus. In four scenes, four movements along the way as Jesus interacts with different people that will shift our perspective four times. And at the end, we will see the man Jesus with authority over even the grave. Those four sections will be first and one through 16. We'll see how Jesus will give us a new perspective 
on, of all things, love. Second and 17 through 28, we'll see a new perspective on comfort. New perspective on comfort. Third and 28 through 36, we'll see a new perspective on even death itself. And finally, in 37 through 44, we'll see a new perspective on glory. Let's begin in 1 through 16, a, a new perspective on love. Now, this is coming right on the heels of Jesus almost getting stoned by a group of religious people. They didn't like the claims he was making of being the good shepherd, even claim of deity itself. Jesus and his disciples had managed to escape. They had pulled back into an area that used to be John the Baptist's stomping grounds. They're far away from the religious leaders in Galilee now. So we pick up in verse 11. Some news reaches Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 11, rather. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. So the setting is Jesus, off in this remote area, away from Jerusalem and the religious leaders, he gets a message from a messenger from a family who he deeply loves. Turns out that their brother, Lazarus, is sick. So sick that they despair for his very life. Now, at that point, that's a good setting for a miracle. We know Jesus is in the business of healing people. He's certainly shown the ability to stave off death from those who are on death's door. So you would expect that Jesus might respond, I'll be right on the way. But we get the first minor shock here in verse 4. Jesus responds to the messenger. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is our first hint that Jesus isn't just going to do a miracle. That as is usually the case, there will be a message behind his miracle. One that will show us something of Jesus that we would not have seen otherwise. Now I'm sure the messenger is expected that that answer from Jesus meant that Lazarus would not die. As we'll see, that is obviously not the case in this story. And yet Jesus is setting the stage against setting a dark backdrop so the glory of God will be seen clearly. Let's continue on in verse 5. Now, we come to the main surprise of this section, verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, notice it does not say Jesus loved Lazarus, and in spite of the fact he loved him, he waited two days, he was busy, or there was something preventing him. No, it does not say that. It says because he loved Lazarus, Jesus stayed right where he was while Lazarus was sick and dying. It was probably about two days' journey for Jesus to get to Lazarus. You would think if he loved him, he would move as as soon as he heard that Lazarus was suffering. He would would be there. I mean, isn't that what love does? Love protects against any discomfort. Love keeps any harm from occurring. That's certainly the way people think of love these days. Love does what people want and nothing more, and certainly love never inflicts any sort of wounds. And yet the sort of love that Jesus is showing here doesn't fit those categories. 
It's a greater sort of love. A love that loves someone so much that it won't settle for lesser joys. A love that will even trade comfort for something greater. It'll trade comfort for a living faith. Jesus does love Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He loves them so much that he won't let them settle for just knowing a little bit about him. No, he is going to push them through the difficulty and discomfort of this death of Lazarus so that they can have a greater view of the glory of God and know Jesus with a living faith. Now, these are not the only people that Jesus is loving in this action. Uh, In verses uh, 7 through the end there, verse 16, we see that he's also thinking about his disciples. This too will serve as a way for him to grow their faith as they understand more of who Jesus is. They, They have one of these back and forths. It's so common with Jesus and his disciples where he says something and they misunderstand it. Then he says something else and they misunderstand it again. So first he says, let's go to Judea again. It's finally time. Two days later, and uh, they immediately think, but but Jesus, weren't they just trying to kill you out there? You're going back to the place where you're about to get stoned? And and then Jesus has this kind of cryptic saying in verses 9 through 10, where he he talks about uh, someone that's working during the day and not during the night. Uh, All he's saying there is that He is only on earth for a certain amount of time that just like someone has to work while there's daylight out and once nighttime comes, the projects are done for the day. Well, Jesus is on his heavenly father's schedule and he's got to keep working as long as his father has him on this earth. Now, after all this, he finally, verse 11, says these things, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. He finally gets to the nub of the matter here. And and yet again, they misunderstand him. They think he's saying, well, maybe Lazarus is in a coma or maybe he's just taking a nap. And and so finally he says it very clearly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go. Uh, I'm so thankful for the patience of Jesus with some very thick disciples. Being a thick disciple myself, who needs the lessons over and over again. I'm thankful for the patience and perseverance shown here. But most of all, I am thankful for a sort of love that won't settle for comfort. Jesus here is showing that he really is loving. Loving Mary, loving Martha, loving Lazarus, loving the 12 disciples, loving them so much that he will trade their comfort so they can have a living faith. Almost commendable there at the end with Thomas. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twins, said to the fellow disciples, let us go also that we we may die with him. Speaks better than he knows. All but one of those 12 disciples will die as a martyr for Jesus one day. And yet at this moment, he has no clue what Jesus has in store for him. Friends, how often is that the case that we just don't know how it is that God is working within our lives to grant us the greater joys of actually knowing Jesus and experiencing his love in a new and fresh, yes, even in a living way. One of the hardest things to get your head around as a disciple of Jesus is that Jesus would trade your comfort for your faith. It's so hard when you're in the midst of pain or disappointment 
or when you're in the same rut that you've fallen into again and again, and you just ask, God, where are you in that moment? It's hard to feel like you're being loved. And yet when we shift our perspective, when we see ourselves through the eyes of the Savior, we see we're actually being loved in a way that we don't deserve. He's trading our comfort for our faith. The very trials that we dislike and even sometimes buck up against are the very things that he uses to unleash new levels of joy within us as we understand who Jesus is. You can see this beautifully in the life of Joni Erickson Tata. You, you, many of you have surely heard her story. Paralyzed as a young woman, confined to a wheelchair, and yet somehow she never gives in to bitterness. One quote of hers as she's speaking about this trade that God makes in her life, she said, not once in all those years has God been mean. What's more, he has satisfied my questions with an intimacy, a softness, and sweetness of fellowship with the Savior that I wouldn't trade for anything, not even walking. Friend, I don't know what trial or difficulty or pain you are bearing this morning, but I know this, if you are a disciple of Jesus, then he is shifting your perspective this morning. He is making the trade of your comfort for a living faith. Don't lose heart. See what the Savior is doing in your life. Now, it must be said that if this was all that was in the passage, you might get the impression that Jesus is being a little bit cold. Seems like he's otherworldly, even maybe not even able to empathize with the real day-to-day -day life that we go through. But that's what we need a second perspective shift. And that's what we see in verses 17 through 28. Not just a, a new perspective on love. We need a new perspective on comfort. We see there in verse 17, the scene shifts. Jesus now, when Jesus came, this is after the journey of about two days, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, just a side note there, that means, if you do the math of the travel, that even if Jesus had left as soon as the messenger arrived, he would not have arrived in time. Lazarus would have already been dead. Continues to verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. That means he's close to those Jews that were trying to kill him. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. So the scene is that this family, a well-to-do family, not far from the hub of religious activity, Jerusalem, they are in a period of mourning. And if you were in a period of mourning, you were expected to follow a certain pattern. Your mourning would not just be a one-day event. It would drag on for days and days. You were, you were even expected, if you were wealthy enough, to hire professional mourners to come and keep everyone's emotions whipped up. You would go on Yelp or something like that and get the, a troop of mourners to come along. They're really good at getting the waterworks going, okay? So there's this group of people in the house and they hear that Jesus is here and one of the sisters, Martha, she runs out, the bolder of the two. And when she runs to Jesus, she has this amazing encounter with him in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now her statement surely is a statement that wishes it were different. It's almost as if, if only you had been here, Jesus, I think things would have turned out different. Now, don't hear it as an accusation. The, the statement that comes after shows us that there's even a small kernel of faith, even in her pain, that we can identify. Now, the, the second statement she makes, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, is a statement of Jesus' standing as a teacher and a holy man, I don't think this means that she's expecting Jesus to ask for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. She's going to be as shocked as anyone else that this happens. No, this is someone deeply hurt who nonetheless has not lost their trust of Jesus. As imperfect as her understanding is, as little as she sees of the whole picture, she sees this much, that Jesus is to be trusted and Jesus is clearly sent from God. Now, Jesus responds to her in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. And at the moment, that seems decidedly unhelpful. Her response in verse 24, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day, uh, it betrays her disappointment. Now, they were good Pharisees. That meant they believed in a final judgment day. And that meant that she knew well that one day, the righteous would be raised again, that there would be a resurrection to look forward to. And yet, friends, very often theologizing in the middle of grief is not a good strategy. Uh, If you come in to someone who's just lost someone and you, you give them a trite kind of theological answer in that moment, more often than not, you're going to do a lot more harm than good. If you have the opportunity to walk alongside someone that's in the midst of grief, they need a hug. They need you to pray with them. But what they don't need you to do is to give your five-point outline about the theodicy and why God is good in the midst of suffering. They're not ready for that yet. So it seems like she's expecting Jesus is giving her one of these kind of trite theologizing answers. She's disappointed about it, but Jesus has something else in mind. He is pushing her toward the only true source of comfort that there is in the face of death. The comfort of knowing Jesus, the one with authority over death. Look at verse 28. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus has another of these I am statements. This one showing clearly that he as the one sent from God, God God in human flesh himself, has the authority over death and therefore has the authority over life. It's a two-part statement. The the front gives us the two parts, and then the verse after fills out both of those two parts. The first, I am the resurrection, and the second, and the life. First, I am the resurrection. When he says, I am the resurrection, he fills it in with, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus' claim here is not just that he is the one that will resurrect people, although that is true. 
No, he claims far more. He claims to be the resurrection, that there is no resurrection outside of relationship with Jesus. To borrow the words of Paul from Romans, you will be raised with Christ if you are raised in this sense. Jesus here has the authority over death. He is the sole source of resurrection and the sole one with authority over death. The the second part of the phrase shows us that he also has the authority over life. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Here Jesus is talking about the fact not just that you'll be raised and your body will be alive, but that when you believe in Jesus, a spiritual, true sort of life starts within you. And that life, that life goes on forever. Your body may die. There may be a time even when your body is not yet resurrected, and yet the life that Jesus gives you, friend, that life, it never ends. Jesus, in this statement, provides the balm that a soul needs in the face of the tragedy of death. That Jesus is the resurrection. He is the life. And anyone who believes in him will experience both a resurrection on the last day and lasting life starting right now. Now, friend, this is preventative medicine. This is not the sort of thing that you need to try and work into your soul when you are in the midst of difficulty and the rawness of emotions. If you're here this morning and that's you, let me just say, just hang on. We're going to see the tenderness and the mercy of Jesus in the next scene coming up. But for all of us who are here this morning and we are not yet within the storm, now is the time to start working this truth down into your heart. So when the day that you are forced to deal with death comes, you'll know where to find your comfort. I remember watching... Uh, mentor of mine whose wife came down with a diagnosis of cancer and went from health to death's door in just a few months. She was an amazingly godly woman. I had seen her walk many elderly saints through the final stages of life and through that doorway into death. She knew this truth well, that Jesus, Jesus is the resurrection, that there is hope beyond the grave through him. I remember that there was a day when a gathering of people came to her house and surprised her by singing songs, even as she was too weak to get up out of her house anymore. There was a a tangible, palpable joy to this woman, even as her life faded away. Brothers and sisters, I know you have seen this at work in your own life in the lives of godly saints around you, those who have taken the preventative medicine have preached to their own soul the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and the eternal life he grants. Friend, remember how important it is. You know, in previous generations, they understood this, that part of your discipleship, even in your own marriage, is to prepare for the day that you or your spouse will die. I think we've lost some of that and we are greatly impoverished by it. We need to think about heaven We need to think about the fact that our days on this earth are numbered. And we need to let the reality of who Jesus is and what he will do for us 
provide comfort that nothing else will. Now, again, this is not enough on its own. If this source of comfort were all that Jesus provided, it would be true, and yet it would feel cruel. Because there's also an appropriate response in the face of death that can only be described as sorrow. We need another shift in perspective. That's what we see in the third section, verses 28 through 36. We need a new perspective on death itself. We have another shift in scene. The second sister, Mary, she finds out that Jesus is off in a way. So when when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. It was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how much he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? In this new scene, Martha goes back to the house and finds Mary She's with the group of professional mourners and she tells her that Jesus wants a meeting. So Mary gets up and goes running out of the house and the the troop of mourners assume, okay, it's showtime. Time to go to the tomb and start our our little show here. They follow her out and instead they go and it turns out she has an encounter with Jesus. And that encounter is definitely more emotional than that of her sisters. Even, Even though they use the same exact words, If you had been here, it would have been different. The fact that she falls at his feet and is weeping shows us that this woman is totally undone. And and notice, Jesus, he responds differently. He responds with two emotions himself. One, I think, is natural enough. He, He weeps. But notice this other emotion that Jesus has. Jesus gets angry. Look right there in uh, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Your Bible may have a footnote there saying that maybe he was indignant. That's because there's a difference of opinion on translation. Um, Again, I'm no uh, Greek scholar, and yet that word that's used seems to better fit an agitation, even a anger that someone is uh, portraying, an agitation that moves toward an action. That word is used in other writings to describe a war horse snorting before battle. That's the sort of word that someone who is unsettled in a I'm going to do something about it sort of way would use. Jesus here shows us the reaction to how it is we should think of death. See, there is definitely a ditch where you can become too comfortable with death. You can either not think about it so much that when it comes, it's a surprise, or you can come to terms with it to such a degree that it almost becomes normal. You go go numb to it. 
We need to always remember that death in this world is a result of sin. That the whole reason that we die is that there is something wrong with this world. What happens when the sinless Son of God comes into the world and is face to face with the reality of his great enemy of sin and the result of sin, death? Jesus snorts. He is agitated and in a moment, we'll see he is going to take action. Now, friends, we just need to realize that that is an appropriate response for a Christian. That we need to be a little unsettled by death. Now, that's not the only reaction we should have. We should see here that Jesus has this other reaction. That he also is stirred up to compassion. In verse 35, that verse that so many students that are doing Bible memorization challenges, know so well. Jesus wept. It's short, but it's important. As the prophets would say, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus really does feel the pain that sin and death cause in this world. Even knowing what was coming, just a short time ahead, Jesus looks at the wreckage of sin and his own heart breaks. Friends, you see the beauty and even the weight of these twin reactions to death. Now we are not to follow Jesus in all things. There are certain things that Jesus himself is the only one that is to do. We do not raise the dead. We don't die on a cross. And yet I think it's appropriate for us as Christians to ask ourselves, do we respond to sin and the consequences of sin death as the Savior does? Are we unsettled, even agitated to action if it is appropriate? Are we simultaneously compassionate and sorrowful? Would we do all we could to help those in the midst of grief, and even to help those avoid the greatest of all griefs, dying apart from Christ? You see, friend, if you are only sorrowful over the effects of sin and death, you will lose your saltiness. You will no longer have the bite of holiness to you. You'll never get over that pleasantry level and tell someone the hard thing they need in order to come to Christ. But if at the same time, if you're only righteously indignant all the time, if your only reaction is to be agitated by sin and death, well, friend, you'll have no compassion. You'll be totally unlike Jesus. You'll be caustic, a, a flamethrower, burning everything in your path. Now, Jesus changes our perspective on death. As believers, we need to be both sorrowful and agitated to act following the example of our Savior. Well, as Jesus has this reaction, we, we see that it's totally misunderstood by this uh, professional troop of mourners. They, they actually end up mocking Jesus. Some say, oh, look how much he loves him. Seems sort of positive. And the others say, couldn't he have prevented all this? Couldn't he have just done a miracle and saved this guy? Well, all of this leads Jesus to move on that agitation toward action. And that brings us to the final scene, the final shift of perspective. Verses 38 through 44. 
a new perspective on glory. Then Jesus, deeply moved again or indignant again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. I love the King James translation there. Lord, he stinketh. It's clearly a reference to the way they buried people in the ancient East. Uh, Jesus himself would be laid in this sort of a tomb, a rock rolled in front of it. They would put burial spices so the smell wouldn't be so bad, but uh, imagine a dead body out in the Middle Eastern heat. Within a few days, it would be very, very unpleasant to be around. There was a thought going around in Jewish circles in that day that in the first three days, that it's possible that someone might come back from the dead. That their spirit kind of hovered around waiting to see if maybe a miracle worker would come along and raise them back from the dead. But by the fourth day, when the body started to smell, by that point all hope was lost. By the fourth day, death had won. This all sets the stage for the climax that this has all been building toward. Jesus is about to show us what it is this whole thing has been about. This miracle he will do and the message behind it. We see here in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Flip back with me for a second, back to verse 4. John is giving us a clue what this whole thing's about. Jesus, this was him telling the messengers at the very beginning of this story. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. This is the stage on which the Son of God will be seen. This is the dark backdrop against which you will actually see his glory. And then Jesus does the actual miracle. So they, they took away the stone. Jesus lifts up his eyes. He prays. His prayer is not for the power to do this miracle. His prayers for the benefit of those around, that they would get the message behind the miracle. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! In that moment, a dead man heard a loud commanding voice, a voice with such authority he could not but obey. Lazarus heard him call his name and walked out of that grave. On that day, Jesus reached down into the pit and darkness of death and called back someone to life and in so doing proved that he has the power over death. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound in linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. Lazarus comes out like a mummy wrapped up in these burial cloths. and We don't get any of the aftermath. We're not told what Lazarus thinks or how the people react. All we're told is Jesus says, let him go. Now, what's the purpose of this story? What's the purpose of this true story? 
It's to show us the Jesus that has authority over death. And therefore, with the authority to tell you how to live your life. And to ask a question of you. The question that Jesus asked to one of these sisters. Do you believe this? You see, friend, there is one thing that will change your perspective on death itself. Even the suffering that leads up to death. Even the way you were to help those in that suffering. Or how you were to live faithfully until that day. If there's one thing that will change everything about life. Shift your perspective. It is the reality that Jesus has the authority over death. And he promises if you believe in him, one day you will rise from the dead yourself. I had the great joy over Easter of sharing the good news of the resurrection with someone who had never heard it before. I went down on a Monday night to our English as a Second Language program that we do in partnership with Fishers. And uh, I, I was explaining the Easter story. And so I went to the end of John's gospel. I explained how Jesus... A dead man was put in a tomb and he came back alive three days later. And I was speaking with a man afterward about it. He had some questions. He, he hasn't even spe speaking English in, in the United States for more than a year. He, he said, you know, I, I'm having trouble understanding what you're saying. Are you saying that he died and that he came back like he was born as a baby somewhere else? I realized he was thinking about reincarnation, that that someone's life ends here and it starts anew and a new cycle over here. And so I told him, no, 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 friend. I'm saying that this Jesus, this, this guy I'm telling you about, went into the tomb and that same guy came back out alive. His eyes got big and he said, wow, I've never heard that before. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's cool. And they said, oh, I got another question for you. Why is that so important? Well, you don't have to give a Baptist preacher any more of an opening than that. I hope you don't have to give anyone more of an opening than that. And so I told him, friend, this changes everything. It means that death is not the end, that there's more beyond this life. And in fact, you can know right now that you'll live forever if you will believe in Jesus. And I very simply explained the gospel to him. Now, I hope the familiarity of this story doesn't change your wonder at what Jesus has claimed here. He is the resurrection. He gives you this eternal life now and forever, but only for those who are in relationship with him. Friends, Lazarus shows us a little picture of what will happen one day on the day of resurrection. Each one of us will hear the voice, that loud, clear, commanding voice, calling our name, and we will not do anything but obey. We will come back to life, and we will see him face to face. If you're here this morning, you're a Christian, that is the best of all news. It means no matter what sorrows or difficulties, no matter what trades God is making for your comfort, for your faith, that you know that your joy will more than outweigh all the difficulties in this life. But friend, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, realize that you too will hear this voice and it will not be a joyful noise that you will hear. This Jesus earlier in John's gospel tells us he will raise the righteous to the resurrection of life and he will also raise the wicked to a resurrection of judgment. 
This Jesus that has the authority over the grave also has authority over each individual that's ever lived. And friend, it is a terrible thing to stand before a holy God in judgment. If you don't know this Jesus in a way that allows you to have no dread of that day, friend, you are missing out on something you desperately need. If that's you this morning, please come talk with me after the service. I would love for you to have this change from dread to the best news ever by you coming to know Jesus. What we see in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead is something that changes our perspective on death and life. That woman I spoke about earlier, Brittany Manyard, it's an awful thing, the darkness that she had to walk through and the way that her life ended. Before she took her life, God was gracious enough to send her a bit of light. A woman by the name of Kara Tippetts, she also had a terminal cancer diagnosis. She wrote a letter to Brittany urging her not to take her own life. She was a young woman who herself had children, a whole life in front of her, and yet she could see that her life was ending. And yet she had a hope because she knew Jesus. In that letter, she wrote of her comfort she found in Jesus. She says, knowing Jesus, knowing that he understands my hard goodbye, he walks with me in my dying. My heart longs for you to know him in your dying because in his dying, he protected my living, my living beyond this place. Short while later, she died. Her last blog post It's hard to read, and yet it's so filled with hope. She wrote, My little body has grown tired of the battle, and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you have that very Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. The only question is, do you believe this? Let's pray.